0: Chapter Chapters eleven and twelve. Charles Thomas Studd, who was known through his life by the initials of his first uh, and middle name, C. T. Studd, was born to a wealthy family in England. And uh, C. T. Studd grew up to be one of the most prominent cricket players of his day. Uh, How many of you have ever played cricket before? Anybody looking around, looking around, have you? Okay, okay, okay. Cricket, I'll I'll confess this to you about cricket. Uh, Cricket, in my, my arrogance, was one of those sports I looked at and thought, how in the world hard could that be to play that? I mean, the ball bounces. Can't they shoot it down the pike like they do in baseball? Come on. And then, Uh, I played one time and was completely humiliated as a complete fool at how difficult uh, it is to play cricket. Um, C.T. Studd was one of the most famous cricket players of his day, and God got a hold of his heart, and he went to China. Uh, He worked uh, in opium dens in China. If you can imagine trying to help people out of opium addictions, and uh, this is late 1860s that all of this was happening. I'm saying this to you because the title of the message this morning comes from a, a, a poem that he wrote. Let me read to you part of that poem. You'll recognize some of this poem. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then here's the title of our sermon today. Only one life. Yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life twill soon be passed. Say it with me if you know it. Only what's done for Christ will last. The book of Ecclesiastes is about your life. It's about your life. It's about our lives. It's about living that one and only God-given life under the sun. <laughs> under the sun to God's glory. It's a realistic look at life. I think that's what meets people's needs as they go through this book. It's a, it's a realistic look at life. It's a look at life without having to give all the answers. Uh, Ecclesiastes is not one of those books that's going to give you all the answers to everything. As a matter of fact, it's going to serve it up that you're not going to have all the answers. And, And it's kind of meant to be that way because we're not meant in our brains to even hold all the answers. We cannot do that. It's a book that allows us to ask hard and deep questions. It gives us space to do that without rebuking us or asking us to figure it out. I have two points to this message this morning. Number one, rejoicing and remembering during youth, and then number two, the end of the matter. As we come to the end of this book, I will say that, as always, I benefit far more than than you as I've gotten to spend so much time with this book and in writings about this book, but I can say that Uh, In my time of preaching here, this book has impacted me uh, in a very deep and profound way in my own life. I feel that the conclusion to this message is woefully inadequate for a book written by a king, King Solomon, and with so much truth within this book, but we will attempt to do so today. And if I can repeat a phrase from C.T. Studd again, without despairing, without cynicism, uh, without discouragement, you know, or sort of laying it upon us in a guilty way, but just having us to think, only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. I want to look at this first section here in chapter 11, verse 7 to 12, 8, that I read already, under this point about rejoicing and remembering during youth. Let me just talk about youth for a minute, because I think the word youth here is relative. Uh, I don't think he's, you know, we say youth, we're thinking probably teenager on down, but I think that he's sort of dividing life up into the days of darkness, which are the days of diminished physical capacities, mental uh, deterioration even and then everything leading up to that. So if you're in your 40s and 50s today and would like to uh, classify yourself as a youth, uh, you can certainly do that. I think what he's trying to get us to do is to say, I need to harness what, what, what is being talked about here during the days when there is the energy to do so, so that I can continue in those diminished days in a way to rejoice in the Lord. And so youth here is, is relative and does not just talk to teenagers and people under their age. In chapter 12, in verse 1, it says, remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. So if you can take these two words, rejoicing and remembering, really the two words that characterize this section. And if I can make a couple observations about uh, this section without commenting on every verse. In chapter 12, in verse 1, it says to remember your creator. I think this is significant because, as we said at the very beginning in this book, the word uh, or uh, God is not mentioned often. Uh, Jesus is not mentioned at all. There is no shadow of the cross uh, that falls heavily upon any chapter. And so when God is mentioned, we want to take note. Well, here it doesn't say God. It doesn't say remember God in the days of your youth. It says remember your creator in the days of of your youth. I think this is significant because all along, as we take this book and put it together, what Solomon has been saying is that we were created with an intended purpose. We were created, he says in chapter 3 and verse 11, God has set eternity in your heart. Uh, there's, there's a reason that even non-Christian people have questions about some of the same things we have questions about. Because eternity is set in our hearts. There's a longing for more. And so when he says, remember your creator, he is telling us, he's calling us back to our intended purpose that navigating life now in its brokenness, in its crooked way, is not all there is. Because there's something more coming, and this right here isn't to be despised. It isn't to be, I can't wait until this part is over. Because he even says in this text that we read, that it's even incumbent upon older people to rejoice. It isn't just for young people to rejoice, and older people have permission to be curmudgeons and to gripe. It's to rejoice in all the days of our lives. But we have to remember that we were created with an intended purpose. As I pointed out earlier, but we'll say again in chapter 12 and verse 2, he's using creation language here. Sun, light, moon, stars. (laughs) All of this now, though it is broken, is for something else. A second observation I want to make about these verses that I read and take a little more time to comment on is that in verses 8 and 9, there is a strong command to rejoice. I don't want to pass over this because, as we've mentioned many times in this book, there are so many times where Solomon is going out and he's observing things. He's not coming to a moral conclusion about something. He's just observing things and then just saying, this is what we see. There's injustice and poverty and there's this and there's all kinds of things without giving us a conclusion to that. Here he gives us an imperative and tells us to rejoice. So we want to stop on that for a moment and talk about this. And by the way, I said earlier, I'll say again, this is not just for youth because it says in verse 8, Rejoice in all your days. In all your days. This practice is especially encouraged during days of light. And if I could put that weight on those of us, you who are young, and now I'm talking to teenagers and people in their 20s, people in their 30s, that there is a temptation for us to always think we'll rebound, we'll get back, we'll recover. This injury is not forever. We can get back, we, we're strong, we can do it. And to forget God in those things. But He admonishes us to think during these days of light. If I could read, have us look again at verse 9. It says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Now, enough has been said in this book about the dangers of life. This passage does not encourage unrestrained living. Because you may look at that and say, Oh boy, walk in the ways of your heart. This heart is deceitful above all things. desperately wicked. He's giving bad advice there. No. He's said enough in the book about the dangers of life. So he's not encouraging unrestrained living. When he says walk in the ways of your heart, what he's talking about are the ways God intended for you to walk in this life. Chapter 8 verse 15 says the life we have has been given by God, meaning that God gave you this life, therefore there's a way to walk in this life. And so here he's telling us to walk that way. Now, I want to talk about this little phrase I, to know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. And to kind of put this together as to what he means by rejoicing. It's not mean just be happy, but walk in the ways you are. Enjoy your life. He said that numbers of times in this book. Instead of just kind of looking up over yonder for that mansion or whatever you think that is, we're to, we're to enjoy this life, even the sim- simple things of this life. We, he said that over and over again. But he says, know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Let me talk about that for just a moment. I think, as I did, and if you grew up in a conservative, maybe we'd say a fundamentalist-type setting, the translation for a phrase like this would be, enjoy life, but make sure the parties are legit. As a matter of fact, we don't call them parties. We call them get-togethers and fellowships. And if we have food, we call them potlucks. But not parties. I say a little bit of that in jest. But I think when we read this, walk in the ways of your heart, but know that God will bring you into judgment. We tend to think that there's sort of an ominous sort of kind of looking over, is this okay? Am I allowed to do this? Lest God judge us for those things. I think there's a better reading for this text. I think the reading for this text goes back to at least pulling together for, for us in having our Bibles to think about the intended purpose of Adam and Eve. When God created Adam and Eve, they were to enjoy life. They were to enjoy God. And God has created us with that component. That God didn't create Adam and Eve to get stuff done. Kind of like little minions. And God needed an earth and he needed people to work and God was too busy and He needed them to do it. No, no, no. God didn't need any of that. God created them with the capacity to enjoy Him and their highest delight of each day was not in fellowship with each other or in some new creation or in building a city. It was in fellowship with God. That is the deepest need that an individual has that God has created us with. We can wrongly use our gifts to indulge and center on ourselves as a result of the fall. So now, Adam and Eve can indulge themselves as most fully seen in the life of Cain. They didn't have the perfect life anymore where they were just enjoying God. But what Solomon is doing us here is he is calling us back to our intended purpose of enjoying life by enjoying God. Consider these verses, Deuteronomy 24, 28, and verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. You know, that verse is in the context of God bringing curses on them. Think about what it says, because you did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart. I mean, some of us have been in church for a long time. Whether it's singing, it's playing a piano, whether it's ushering, whether it's teaching a Sunday school class, setting up cookie, preaching. We've been in a church a long time. How many of us can say that we do what we do with gladness and joyfulness of heart, not just because of the joy it brings others, but because if nobody else appreciates that we are in fellowship with God, we're doing it for Him. It is a big deal that we enjoy the life that God has given us. Here's a very interesting passage about enjoying life and enjoying God. Because it comes from one of the mouths of Job's friends. So this guy says to Job, Eliphaz, Job 22 and verse 24 if you lay gold in the dust, and by what he's meaning by that is if you take what is valuable, and gold would have been very valuable, and you just cast it aside, you give it away, you put it in the dust. You know, it's of no value to you anymore. If you do that, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. Then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. Now, if you just read those verses that way, and you'd be like, oh man, put that on a card, I want to memorize that, those are my life verses. Until we remember, in the book of Job, that it says in Job 42.7, The Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, the guy who said those words, My anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Now, let me ask you a question. What is not right about this? If you lay gold in the dust, then the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. Then you will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. What is wrong with that? Well, on the surface, nothing is wrong with that except the context in which it was given. Eliphaz's assumption was if people are going to enjoy God, they can't be in suffering. So if you're going to enjoy God, and this really cuts into the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're going to enjoy God, Eliphaz reasons, you just got to give it all over to God. You must be unsurrendered, Joe, because suffering people don't have this kind of uh, 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 people who are right with God don't have this kind of stuff happening to them. Therefore, there's something wrong with your spiritual life. Get your spiritual life in check, and then you can enjoy God. Do you know what Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes? Your life isn't going to be perfect. As a matter of fact, I'm going to keep showing you over and over and over again it's not perfect. So if you're waiting to enjoy God until you have a perfect life, you have bought into the fallacy that this guy was feeding Job. And that's not right. What Solomon is saying is, in your imperfect life, In the things that have happened, and sometimes, folks, you can't tell whether it was your fault or somebody else's fault. Let's just say that. It's not to take the emphasis off of yourself. You're just like, if I can just figure this out, then I'll be happy. Listen, Solomon says you may not be able to figure it out. You've given time, you've given energy to it. You may not be able to figure it out. But what you can do is you can stop where you are in the imperfect life you have and you can enjoy God. That's the emphasis of Ecclesiastes chapter 11 at the end and the beginning of chapter 12. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk, preached that on a Sunday, series on a Sunday night. It really needs to be on a Sunday morning because Habakkuk was living during a very frustrated time. And God moves this man from frustration to faith. And here, here is the conclusion. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail And fields yield no food, and flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall. Did you just see what he just did there? His entire economic resources are cut off. All the stuff that would sustain a person's life. All the stuff. What does it take to sustain your life? Happy marriage, happy kids, enough finances coming in. What does it take to sustain our... I mean, there's a lot of things that we would put down to say, what is it going to take to me, for me to be happy? He's listing some things here. doesn't list anything about physical infirmities. But here's what he says, though this doesn't happen, this doesn't happen, this doesn't happen, verse 18. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Uh, to me, that's like... To me, that's like Postdoctoral work-level Christianity. But you know what Solomon takes it to? That's normal Christianity, that God calls us to a life of joy even when it seems like this is the most unlikely life in the world to have joy right now, like Job's life. <laughs> There's a quote from a book I was reading with this. There's a way of looking at the world that sees God's goodness gifted to us and that causes us to live with constant wonder His daily provision. There's another way of living that feels constantly slighted by God and others and becomes a greenhouse for bitter roots to flourish. One day the extent to which we have embraced life's gifts will be called to account. So let me ask you today, how are you practicing the command to rejoice in your one and only life? You, I'm talking about you, in your way, your temperament. By the way, don't look at somebody else's temperament that is, I don't know the ten, the, the, all the temperament things or whatever, but don't look at the happy temperament and say, well, I guess that's the person God's talking to. I, I just can't be like that. You know what? We're not all made to be like that. If we were just happy rainbows all the time, we would be all sick of that because nobody wants rainbows and, and you know, c- sort of happy, happy balloon life all the time. We're made to be different, but within those differences, we rejoice. How are you practicing the command to rejoice. How are you handling the simple things? Okay, for a second, take the big thing that's in your life right now. Whatever the big thing is, whether it's health or finances or job or family or whatever, whatever the big thing, just set that over here. And, and I'm not saying forget about it, but, but let's set it over here and let's talk about some of the simple things that can be rejoiced in. Because Solomon goes back to those things. He goes back to those things. How are you rejoicing in family, in friends, in food, in drink, in thankfulness? If you are older, I'm not going to define that right now. You can define whether you're in that category. If you are older, how can you thank God for His gifts in the past but live in the present? I think that, that, and I know some of you... When you hear me talk like I'm old, you're like, oh, you're not old yet. I know, I know that, and I buy that. But I'm saying the older I get, the more that I begin to develop my, my own good old days. I have some good old days too. And what I've found in my own life is that that's okay to hold on to, but I use that as an escape, and I don't live in the present. I miss the present because I'm always in my mind. It could be just I'm in my mind. How are you going to rejoice in the past but live in the present? This passage gently leads us by the hand into old age. It doesn't confront us, it doesn't smack us in the face with old age. It gives us some beautiful pictures of old age. But it doesn't allow us to look away. It, It forces us to reckon that if you live a normal number of years, you will have old age come into your life. This passage does not relegate old years to wasted years. What are you doing to fight against being critical or sour? Maybe you're older and you hear this passage and you're like, you, you know you are. You're, you're just like, I am. I'm critical. I'm critical. My kid's critical. My grand, I just can't stop it. And I'm not young, and I feel like I've missed my my window to rejoice. You haven't missed your window to rejoice. You know why? Because God knows where you are, and God can help you through this stage too. Second point in this message is the end of the matter, but before I give this, let me quote these words again. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. If you'll look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 9, I'm going to read the end of the book of Ecclesiastes and summarize this. Verse 9 says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and ranging many proverbs with care, great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed or collected sayings, they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. And our kids in school say amen to that. The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You see in the beginning of those verses 9, 10, and 11, words, 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 words. So let me talk about words. Verse 10 are words of delight. These are words of delight. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they became the joy and the rejoicing in my heart. These words are words of delight. They are delightful because they speak to the heart. They speak to the heart. Verse 11, these are words of guidance. It says, the words of the wise are like goads. It's the instrument to keep the animal on the path, just to to tap it or have a a slightly sharp instrument at uh, the the tip of that instrument. Guiding is sometimes painful. There's times where I look at the text and I think, I don't want to preach that. (laughs) I don't want to talk about that. I don't even really want to think about that myself. Words of the wise are like goads. There are several points in this book where he won't let us look away from death and old age. I don't want to think about death, and I don't want to think about old age. I don't. But he won't let us look away. We allow this book to have its effect as we face what the author is leading us to see. So let me ask you, how has the book of of Ecclesiastes challenged your thinking? How has the book of Ecclesiastes challenged your thinking? And then thirdly, there are words of perspective here. Verse 13, here's the end of the matter. Here's the conclusion that he came up with. All has been heard. Fear God, keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Ultimately, in Solomon's book and in the word of God, it all comes back to God even though god wasn't mentioned on every single chapter of this particular letter he comes and he summarizes and he say he says that we are created with an intended purpose and if you're to live fully in that intended purpose then live rightly related to god you can however live another way you can Chapter 8 and verse 13, it says, It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Here he's telling us to fear God, keep his commandments. And there's another way to live too. say, how do I know if I'm fearing God or not fearing God? I don't want to be part of the wicked. What are you doing with his son, Jesus Christ? Because Jesus is at the very epicenter of the Bible. He rescued you by dying on the cross so that you wouldn't have to pay for your sin. And by repenting of your sin, that means changing your mind about how you're going to be saved. You can't save yourself. It's only through Christ. There's the beginning of fearing God, standing under the words of God. Can I say that the best way of living is by orienting ourselves to God in His words is what Solomon says. But this is not to be done alone. Because in chapter 4, he told us two are better than one. That's not just a wedding passage. That's for Christians. Two are better than one. And so while we are thinking about our relationship with God, and Solomon is forcing us to think about our relationship with God, I want you to think about your relationship with other Christians. There's another quote by author Zach Eswine. He said, Those of us hurt by the dark sides of community are tempted to choose folly as a response. In arrogance, we resist the counsel of Scripture that two are better than one. We go it alone to declare we need no one. But this response hurts. By the way, that's exactly what I what was kind of the instinctive response in my heart about us choosing a church. Let's go to a place nobody knows us. We can just boop, boop. I mean, it's just instinctive. We go it alone to declare we need no one. But this response hurts as much as the wound we have no desire to repeat. We need grace to recognize the wheat from the weeds. Part of this grace identifies neighbors given to us by God who bring us news of the one shepherd amid the strife under the sun. For this, Jesus, for this reason, Jesus taught us to pray, our Father, give us, forgive us, lead us not, and deliver us in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13. We live, live as God intended or not, but let's remember this. Verse 14 God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And this is a warning. This isn't the judgment. God's going to judge us based on how we enjoyed Him and His gifts. But here's a judgment on whether we lived oriented toward Him or not. Chapter 1 and verse 3 of Ecclesiastes, he says, What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? It's an interesting question. What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? That's where we are introduced to sort of this feeling of cynicism, like, man, you could work your whole life, and then your wealth goes to somebody who didn't even work for it. What gain is there? In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul answers to this in a very profound and clear way when he says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Gain. He's not talking about a morbid interest in death. We just look forward to death. What he's talking about is that for the Christian at death, we gain Christ forever. And there is great gain in living our lives oriented toward God on whatever path you have. Not going to be a perfect path. Stop looking for the perfect path. Enjoy the life you have and love God because... Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Finish it with me. Uh, No, (laughs) soon will its fleeting hours be done. You didn't know that part. (laughs) (laughs) Only one life, yes, only one. Josh is going to come and close us in prayer here this morning.